Good morning. Welcome to The Point, the radio ministry of Life Point Baptist Church of Early Texas. Life Point meets for Sunday school at 10 a.m., morning worship at 11 a.m., and we meet at the Early Chamber of Commerce Small Business Incubator Facility, which is located at 104 East Industrial Drive in Early. That's just off of Highway 377, back behind where they're building the new townhomes right beside Pate's Hardware. We meet there at 10 a.m. this morning for Sunday school, 11 a.m. for morning worship, and we hope to be able to meet you this morning. If we're not able to meet you this morning, maybe sometime in the near future. If you're looking for daily devotional thoughts and Bible teaching as well as information on our church, you can log on to point2life.wordpress.com. That address again, point2life.wordpress.com. You can also send us a letter at P.O. Box 3134, Early Texas, 76803. That address again, P.O. Box 3134, Early Texas, 76803. Feel free to send us any prayer requests as you correspond with us. This morning we'll look at Ezra chapter 3. Ezra chapter 3, we'll begin reading in verse 1. Ezra chapter 3, verse 1. And when the seventh month was come, and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. Then stood up Jeshua, the son of Josedek, and his brethren, the priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel and his brethren, and builded the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings thereon, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. And they set the altar upon its bases, for fear was upon them because of the people of those countries. And they offered burnt offerings thereon unto the Lord, even burnt offerings morning and evening. They kept also the Feast of Tabernacles, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the custom, as the duty of every day required, and afterward offered the continual burnt offerings both of the new moons and of all the set feast of the Lord that were consecrated, and of everyone that willingly offered a freewill offering unto the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month began they to offer burnt offerings unto the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. They gave money also unto the masons, and to the carpenters, and meat and drink and oil unto them of Zidon, and to them of Tyre, to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea of Joppa, according to the grant that they had of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second year of their coming unto the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month began Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and the remnant of their brethren, and the priests, and the Levites, and all they that were come out of the captivity unto Jerusalem, and appointed the Levites from twenty years old and upward, to set forth the work of the house of the Lord. Then stood Jeshua with his sons and his brethren, Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together to set forward the workmen in the house of God, the sons of Hinnadad, with their sons and their brethren, the Levites. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, they set the priests in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord after the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang together by course in praising and giving thanks unto the Lord, because he is good, for his mercy endureth forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid." 
But many of the priests and Levites and chief of the fathers, who were ancient men that had seen the first house when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, wept with a loud voice, and many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the noise was heard afar off. Now here in Ezra chapter 3, the people of Israel had returned to Israel following a 70-year captivity in Babylon that God had brought on due to idolatry. So they're returning to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And this is what God wanted them to do. He prophesied in the book of Haggai that he wanted the people to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And they were a little bit hesitant because they feared the people that had taken up habitation in the land in their absence during the captivity. They feared uh, political retribution. They feel they feared military retribution. They feared that rebuilding the temple would bring on persecution from the Persian Empire, which was still in charge of things back then. And they feared that there would be reprisal attacks from some of the people that had moved into the land. It was very similar to the situation with the Israelis and the Palestinians today. And so even though God had prophesied and uh, foretold and commanded the rebuilding of the temple, the people were just a little bit hesitant to do that. But in the book of Ezra, God came through in a mighty way. In the book of Ezra, he stirred the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, to order and to fund the reconstruction of the temple. And so they were there in Jerusalem. Haggai had told them the Lord commanded the rebuilding of the temple. In fact, Haggai even told them that God himself said, I am with you. And so that was a big boost for the Israelites. But then when King Cyrus comes through and says, I want you to build this and here's the money to do it, that's God coming through in a big way. God is rebuilding his nation of Israel and his city of Jerusalem here in the book of Ezra. And likewise, God is rebuilding our lives that have been destroyed by sin, and he is rebuilding his kingdom and going to reconstruct or rebuild his earth. One day he will do that, that we will live in the world and in the way that he intended on us living. And so God intends on these things, and God will bring these about, and God comes through in big ways for us. The Israelites... Back at the end of chapter 2, collected an offering, and using that offering, they began rebuilding the temple. And the first thing they did when they started rebuilding the temple was to build the altar. Now, the altar, we think of altars as like the communion table inside of a church building. That's not what the altar was. The altar was a giant, uh, think of it as a giant grill or a giant barbecue pit. I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty much what that was. And so the first thing they do is they build that altar, and that's a significant thing. And then after they get the altar built and they put the altar in use with the animal sacrifices, then they begin rebuilding the building of the temple. And of course, the first thing you always do in a project like that is you set the foundation. Now, it is significant that when they began to rebuild the temple, Instead of starting with the building and the foundation and the walls and that sort of thing, the first thing that they built was that altar. That's a significant detail. This shows you where the heart of the people is or where the hearts of the people are. 
Their hearts were on worship. Their hearts were on their redemption. Their hearts were on their reconciliation with God. The altar symbolized reconciliation. The altar symbolized their redemption. And that was very important to them. And so they rebuilt the altar. And by rebuilding the altar, and after they rebuilt the altar, they celebrated their redemption through those sacrifices. And once that altar was fully restored, worship was restored. So let's talk about this altar. The altar demonstrated their redemption. Now, how does this altar demonstrate redemption? This altar was a brazen box with a grate in the middle situated over a flame. And so you've got this brazen box, all right, if you can imagine that. Uh, it's, it's open at the top, it's open at the bottom. Underneath, you've got the coals and the wood and the stubble and everything they use to burn. They keep that fire going and they keep that fire going hot. You've got the grate in the middle of the thing and then the animal sacrifices would be placed on the top and they would either be put there and they would burn up or they would be put there and they would be cooked and then they would be eaten depended on, depending on what kind of sacrifice was being made. Like the sin offering was where you would take the sacrificial lamb and you would kill it and place it on the altar and then the lamb would be, the, the, the lamb's body would be burned up and it would be no more. Um, that was the sin offering. That was a, an offering that you brought to uh, reconcile with God over your sin. There was also the um, there was also another offering where you were wanting to uh, fellowship with God, and you would uh, you would bring that lamb in, and perhaps you had some sin that needed repenting from. Perhaps you you needed to return to the faith, as it were. You would bring this other offering in. And you would sacrifice that lamb, place that, am, that lamb upon the altar where it would be cooked, and then you'd pull the meat off, and you and the priest would eat part of that meat, and the fat would be left on the altar to burn up, and that was the Lord's portion. And in essence, you were having a meal with God. And so there were different ways to do that, but that's how that altar worked. You had the fires underneath the grate. You had the grate where the sacrificial animals were placed, and then... That, that's where it all took place. But the one detail that often gets overlooked with this altar are the horns of the altar. Now, the, you got this box-shaped grill, more or less, and on the four corners of this box-shaped grill, you have these horns. Now, those horns represent the judgment of God. And so when you made a sacrifice at the temple, you brought that lamb in, and you brought that lamb up to the altar, you tied that lamb to one of those four horns. And this symbolized that lamb being your substitute in the judgment of God. Now that lamb that you sacrificed at the altar, there at the temple, that lamb that you sacrificed represented, was a picture, if you will, an illustration of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And that's why John the Baptist said in John chapter 1, verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. The Lamb is a picture of Christ. And just as Christ died for our sins, this sacrificial lamb would be killed as it stood there, tied to that horn. And so what they were doing in the Old Testament 
was they were picturing what Christ would one day do by sacrificing this lamb. Today, we picture that through the church ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Back then, they did this through animal sacrifice. And this the reason that was the case, the reason Scripture ordered that, was to teach the people how serious the matter of sin was. When you went into the temple in the Old Testament days and you went inside that wall to where those sacrifices were being were being conducted and you saw the slaughter of the animals, you saw the flames, you saw those horns, you saw everything that was going on there, you would you'd get the picture pretty quickly that sin was deadly, that sin was severe. You got the picture pretty quickly how seriously God took sin, but you also were taught about how God paid for our sins and how he redeems us from our sins. And that was all one big lesson on what Christ would go on to do for us. So just as they would sacrifice those lambs for sin, Jesus Christ died for our sins. And so when you took this lamb and you marched it up there to the altar and you tied it to the horn of the altar, this represented the lamb taking your place in the judgment of God. The judgment of God being deflected from you upon this little lamb, just as the wrath of God, the judgment of God was deflected from us and placed on Jesus Christ. So with this lamb tied to this altar, and I don't know if you've ever been around sheep or if you've ever been to like a youth fair and you see that when you, when you hold those lambs' heads up, they stand a certain way. With this lamb tied to the horn of this altar, you would then take the lamb's life by slitting its throat. You would sacrifice this lamb. And once that, once you did that and you'd slit the lamb's throat, you would take the blood from the lamb and you would place it upon that horn of the altar. And this symbolizes the fact that the blood of Jesus Christ, the blood of the lamb, covers God's judgment for sin. The lamb was then placed on the altar or it was burnt up. This is a total sacrifice. Just as Christ fully offered himself as a sacrifice for our sin. In building this altar, the people demonstrated their redemption. God had delivered them from the captivity brought on by their sin. We've talked about this in recent weeks. We have talked about how the people lived in idolatry for generations. For over a hundred years, they committed idolatry. And this idolatry is not just burning incense in front of a little gold statue on a shelf. This idolatry involved child sacrifice. That is, even, even if you don't believe in God, the idea of child sacrifice should be offensive. The idea of child sacrifice should be repulsive to you, even if you don't believe in God. But if you do believe in God, it should be even that much more repulsive to you because you understand the value of life, but not only the value of life, you understand the concept put forth in the scriptures in Psalm 127 that children are a heritage of the Lord. Children are God's gifts. Children are gifts that God gives us 
trusting us with their lives and with their souls to raise them up in the nurture and in the admonition of the Lord, and they become a reward to us. He, he rewards us by allowing us to see what they grow up into and, and allowing us to, to see the people that they become and allowing us to learn through that experience how God interacts with us and how God works in our lives. And so there's a whole reward to raising children. And, and it's, a, it's a blessing, and it's a privilege, and it's a privilege, unfortunately, that's denied to some who would want nothing more than to have a child. But I'm telling you, if that's the situation you're in, God's working through that as well. You haven't been abandoned. But they would take their children, and they would sacrifice their children to the god of Molech, which involved burning the child up. This was a very gruesome and brutal thing to do to your child. Think about how hard-hearted you have to be in order to conduct a child sacrifice on your own kid. All right, so this is how evil the nation of Israel had become. And they had also this idolatrous worship involved sexual immorality. And there were some pretty disgusting things that happened there as well. So, um, you know, so it had gotten pretty bad. And if we look at our culture, we see some of the same things happening. Now, we don't sacrifice in our culture. We don't see people sacrificing their children on burning altars. We don't see that happening. But we do see people uh, killing their children through the practice of abortion. We do see people sacrificing the lives of their children through abortion out of convenience so that the, the, the conception and life of that child does not inconvenience their lifestyle. We do see people sacrificing their children at the altars of uh, drug abuse and of irresponsibility. We see people turning their children over to pop culture to raise them. And so these, these are things that we do need to, we do need to think about. But back in that day, they were doing some pretty gruesome things there. And so God warned them for over a hundred years that he was going to judge them for this, and they never repented. So he allowed the Babylonian Empire to rise up to take the people into captivity, to destroy their nation, to destroy the city, to take the people back to Babylon as servants. And there they were for 70 years in that captivity until the Persian Empire conquered Babylon. And when the Persian Empire came along, the people were able to begin to move back. And so what God was doing after having spent 70 years correcting their behavior through the Babylonian captivity, he is bringing them back into the land. They were being redeemed. God had delivered them from the captivity brought on by their sin. He caused their sin to pass from them, and they were forgiven. And as they built this altar, they were having their kingdom restored to them. You see, the concept of redemption is more than just forgiveness of sin. Forgiveness of sin is important. Forgiveness of sin is what spares you God's judgment. But God goes beyond forgiveness of sin. He goes into restoration. Redemption carries with it the meaning of having things uh, set back up the way that they ought to be. The sin had been forgiven, and the kingdom was being restored. They were being redeemed. Now, back in the Old Testament, there were practices of slavery, and so God set forth a law to teach the people how to deal with this societal evil. And so what happened in the Old Testament with slavery was if a guy wound up in debt and the only way he could get out of debt was to sell himself into slavery, there were certain protections for him. 
So first of all, when he sold himself into slavery to pay off of his debt, then he was only going to be a slave for seven years, then he had to be set free again. Now, if your brother had wound up in this situation and he was in debt and he sold himself into slavery, you could buy him out of that. Suppose your brother sold himself into slavery for $50,000 to pay off a $50,000 debt. You could go to the guy who purchased your brother and say, listen, I've got the $50,000. I want my brother back. And by law, he had to honor that. He had to sell you your brother back for that $50,000. Now, when you bought your brother back, you the Bible used the word redeemed. You redeemed your brother back. Now, when you bought him back, he wasn't your slave. When you bought him back, he became a free man once again. He'd go back to his home, go back to his family. Everything would be set back the way it should have been. That was redemption. Similarly, the nation of Israel was sent into slavery and servitude for 70 years in Babylon. But what's happening here in the book of Ezra is they are being redeemed back out of that. God is bringing them back out of that and back into their land and rebuilding their kingdom. That's redemption. Listen, a lot of us have messed up our lives through sin. But when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he not only paid the price for that sin, he not only took the wrath and judgment of God upon himself for that sin, but he purchased you back from the bonds of sin, which means that you are no longer trapped in that sin. You are no longer a slave to that sin. You have been set free from that sin. And now you are free to live as a child of God, which was God's intention for you in the first place. You have been redeemed. Now, this is not just a philosophical concept. God works in your life like this as well. God works in your life to restore your life to what he intended on it being in the first place. That's redemption. The question this morning is, have you been redeemed? Have you been redeemed? We look in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. The Bible says, My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. When John writes in 1 John 2, 1, these things I write unto you that ye sin not. That, that word sin comes from a Greek word with a verb tense that means it's an ongoing thing, a lifestyle of sin. John was writing so that we would not live a lifestyle of sin. But if any man falls into this, or if any man is still into this, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And the Apostle John says in 1 John 2, 2, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. That word propitiation is referring back to that sacrificial lamb at the altar in the Old Testament. Jesus Christ is that sacrificial lamb tied to that horn of judgment instead of us. Thus, through his death and his burial and his resurrection, he cleared our sin debt from us. He redeemed us. And that same Jesus who laid down his life on the cross for our sins, redeeming us and then rising again the third day to open up the doors and the gates of heaven that we may have eternal life through him, that same Jesus is our advocate. 
Now, if the guy who died for your sins, who redeemed you from sin, who paved the way into heaven for you is your advocate, how in the world can anybody argue against him? How in the world can anybody accuse you of anything when the guy who paid the price for your sin is also the guy who's vouching for you? Nobody can accuse you of anything. Nobody can condemn you for anything. Nobody can lay anything to the charge of God's elect, as the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verses 33 through 34. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Have you been redeemed? Has this happened in your life? Do you know that the Lord has paid for your sin on the cross? Do you trust him to receive you into heaven because he rose again and is at the right hand of the throne of God, where he is your advocate, where he makes intercession for you, where he ever lives to make intercession for you? Have you been redeemed? Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? In order for this redemption that I've discussed this morning to apply to you, you have to believe Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Being justified by faith. That word justified means to be declared paid up. That's that statement that you get from the loan company that says paid in full. That's when you finally get the title to your house after you've made that last mortgage payment, the title to your car after you've made the last car payment. When you get that letter from the credit card company that says we're not going to send you bills anymore because you've got your your balance paid off and this account is hereby closed and that's one less thing you have to worry about. That's what justified means. When you read the word justified in the Bible, that's what it's referring to. So when it comes to biblical justification, when the Bible tells us we're justified, that means that our debt over sin that was owed to God, our debt over sin has been paid in full. Therefore, being justified, paid in full, by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This word faith means a deep-rooted trust. You trust the redemption through Jesus Christ, which means you also believe the premise of that redemption, which is that you are a sinner, that you are a sinner that was condemned to hell, that deserved God's wrath and judgment for your sin, but Jesus Christ took that upon himself to pay for your sin and to redeem you. By trusting the Lord's redemption of you, by trusting that the Lord secured your salvation on that cross, you are turning from your sin, from that lifestyle of sin, from being a sinner, you are turning from that and toward the Lord, you are trusting him to receive you into his kingdom. I had a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses visit me uh, about a week and a half ago, and we got into a theological discussion, as tends to happen, and they were talking about the new world and everything that they believe, and I asked them why they thought that they would be in there. And I told them, I said, if God were to ask you, why should I let you into 
my kingdom? Why should I allow you into my new world as their understanding of it is? Uh, why should I let you into heaven, so to speak? If God were to ask you that question, what would be your answer? And they stood there and they said, well, we don't want to get involved in a discussion like this. I said, I understand, but whatever answer you just thought of, your first impulse, if God were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? Your answer, that because of this, that pops into your head, that's where your faith is to get you into heaven. And any faith that is short of the cross will leave you short of heaven. What I mean by that is if you're not fully trusting Christ to receive you into heaven, if you're not fully trusting Christ for salvation, if you believe that you've got to trust yourself to a certain degree, then that will leave you short of heaven. If you have to trust your own works to get you into heaven, then that's not trusting Christ, that's trusting you. So if I ask you, if God were to say, why should I let you into heaven? And your answer is because I've been baptized, then that's where your faith is. Your faith is in your baptism. And the Bible doesn't teach that faith in baptism is what saves. The Bible teaches that faith in Christ is what saves. And we can go down a whole list of different works in that regard. Jesus Christ gave his life on the cross to pay for your sins, to redeem you from sin, and to welcome you into his kingdom. Will you accept that free gift? Life Point Baptist Church meets this morning for Sunday school at 10 a.m., morning worship at 11 a.m. We meet at the Early Chamber of Commerce Small Business Incubator Facility, which is located at 104 East Industrial Drive in Early. That's just off of Highway 377 behind where they're building the new townhomes next to Pates Hardware. You can find us online by logging on to point2life.wordpress.com. That address again, point2life.wordpress.com. Hope you have a blessed Sunday today. May God bless you.